Al Jazeera podcast. A Ukrainian missile strike hits Russia's naval headquarters in Crimea. Attacks on the Russian-controlled territory have intensified, just as Ukraine's ground offensive in the east makes little headway. So why is Crimea so important to both sides in this war? I'm Laura Kyle, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests now. And in Moscow, Andrei Baklanov, Deputy Chairman of the Association of Russian Diplomats. He's also a former Russian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. In London, Domitila Sagramoso, Senior Lecturer in Security and Development at King's College London and the author of Russian Imperialism Revisited from Disengagement to Hegemony. And in New York, Michael Borsicu, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and a former spokesman for the OSCE's Special Monitoring Mission to Ukraine. A very warm welcome to all of you. Michael, let's start with you. The, the Black Fleet headquarters, it's a major high-profile target. How how did Ukraine pull off this attack? Sure. Well, um, look, you referred to, uh, the correspondent referred to that area as a military fortress, but we're seeing because of Ukrainian attacks, it's nothing more than a sandcastle. Even that's kind of a compliment. I mean, the fact that the Russian, uh, sorry, the fact that the Ukrainian rockets were able to penetrate the highly vaunted uh, S-400 Russian air defense system is absolutely astounding. Look, these are systems that countries like Turkey and India have paid billions of dollars for, and now we're seeing that it's largely ineffective, not only protecting the Crimean Peninsula, but also the airspace in Moscow against fairly rudimentary drones. So huge uh, success for the Ukrainian forces. But if I can, I mean, we have to remember also the wider picture that Crimea is very, very important strategic for three reasons, historic. Uh, economic and military. And economically, uh, everyone's looking at this in these, this day and age with oil and gas uh, reserves, mm. but there's a lot there. And uh, as well, uh, previous to uh, Russians, Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, they were paying billions of dollars of rent uh, to Ukraine. So if you put all of that together, it's very strategic. And then I should also add, uh, I am temporarily based in Odessa. We think of Crimea a lot for several reasons, but one of the reasons is that it is the base for these uh, Russian missiles being launched and targeting not only Odessa, but the ports and a critical component of the global food supply chain. So when Ukraine does strike Crimea, it's not only for its own military reasons, defensive reasons, but also because it is keeping the world's food supply chain in mind. Okay, Michael, thank you. There's a lot to get into there uh, in this discussion. First of all, Andre, let's get your response here. This is the latest in a string of attacks that we've seen in Crimea. How big a blow is this to Russia's Black Sea fleet? Uh, okay, I think uh, this is a very serious uh, development of the affairs uh, in the military sphere in this war. Uh, but uh, actually, we expected something like that. And uh, that's, that's why uh, a long time ago we decided to hide our headquarters and other, and other sensitive objects uh, um, uh, in the territory of Crimea and some other places. And of course, this was the blow not to the uh, people that are working in the headquarters, but to the building. But at the same time, 
it's a very serious thing. I think that, uh, well, uh, all countries in the world, they are lacking efficient uh, anti uh, uh, the new system against the so-called drones. All systems are only uh, in the start of the developing. So, well, it's quite natural that uh, many objects uh, will uh, feel uh, a danger uh, that uh, the development of the affairs. Uh, so, so this is the reality of the present day, uh, uh, you know, war we are waging. Andre, if if Russia, if Moscow ex expected this attack, why did it not better defend its Black Sea Fleet headquarters? I think that the only uh, real effective way of defending against such attacks is, uh, you know, uh, striking the basis, the basis uh, of these uh, striking facilities of the Ukraine. I think that it will it will happen in some other period. So I, I'm not quite sure that uh, uh, it was, uh, well, uh, uh, it was not uh, a certain restraint, a certain restraint in our uh, military, uh, you know, tactics. Uh, perhaps it was uh, not very much uh, wise uh, policy. We should have uh, the opportunity to strike uh, against these bases a long time ago. Domitila, Andre saying there that this attack was to be expected, that it didn't come as a surprise. Do you agree with that? Yes, I think that it is clear that already now for several months, if not over a year, that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have been trying to um, weaken uh, Russia's military presence uh, in Crimea for obvious reasons, as was explained by the first guest speaker. Uh, the fact that from Crimea there is always a challenge on the sort of north western coast of Ukraine on the Black Sea, and that's where a lot of the grain uh, is being uh, exported. So Russia, um, for Ukraine, it's very important to make sure that there isn't a sort of a, a landing opportunity on the shores of, of Odessa and these this shores of, of Ukraine. At the same time, uh, Crimea is the seat uh, in Sevastopol of the Black Sea Fleet of Russia, and uh, it is from uh, from this fleet that a lot of the missiles are being fired at Ukrainian infrastructure. When uh, a lot of the from from uh, ships or, or submarines that are seaborne, but they're based uh, in the uh, in the Crimean um, base of Sevastopol. So this is also a, a very important point to try to mm. diminish the ability of Russia to hit at uh, Ukraine, at the mainland and the infrastructure. So I think that it's it's something that, uh, you know, was to be, uh, you know, I mean, was talked about for quite some time. And we've seen many operations already last year when uh, there were attacks on on the bases that Russia had, the, the, the air bases that Russia has uh, in, in Crimea. Andre, President Putin has always said that Russia, that Crimea is a red line that mustn't be crossed. So how will he responds to this because we now keep seeing Crimea being hit. Well, uh, we are expecting that uh, there will be another phase uh, in the, the development of the military affairs and uh, uh, there will be much more uh, attacks uh, against uh, the Ukrainian facilities, uh, air bases, uh, and, uh, well, uh, the facilities dealing with the electricity, and uh, etc. You know, 
well, uh, actually, we have been doing this, uh, but not uh, on the level that will uh, give the opportunity to uh, make uh, the victory uh, in, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, certain period of time, uh, several months. I think that will, it will need no less than two years, uh, because uh, the uh, quantity of the troops are very limited. When we were uh, liberating Ukraine in the Second World War, we had 12 times more troops than we are having now on the territory of Ukraine. So this is a rather limited quantity in comparison even with the quantity of the troops of the uh, Ukrainians. Uh, Kyiv government uh, has... So, uh, well, uh, well, I think that the strategy is to prepare ourselves uh, now uh, not for the war against uh, the, the Kyiv regime, but uh, with the war with the NATO, because mm. this is a preliminary stage of the, this kind of the conflict. And the main thing is now to save the troops and give them opportunity uh, to gain the necessary experience, real battle experience. These are, these are the main uh, elements of the strategy. Okay, uh, Michael, I'll just give you a chance to respond there to what Andre says before bringing us back to Crimea. Uh, less than two years before Russia sees victory in Ukraine, what's your response to that? Um, that would be a miracle <laughs> by any standard. They are not doing well on several front lines, uh, whether it's land-based, the, the long front line that stretches from north of Ukraine to the south, but also, obviously, in Crimea and also uh, able being able to protect its own skies. I mean, I'm also wondering, how does the average Russian think about this, whether they live in Crimea or they live in the outskirts of Moscow or even central Moscow, that they are now getting a taste of what Ukrainians throughout Ukraine face every day, this barrage of missiles and drones. So I, I, I wonder what this uh, means for Mr. Putin's uh, uh, hold on power. The other thing uh, we should say uh, is that uh, what Russia has done with Crimea in the past decades is the uh, fits into a pattern of not only disregarding its own international bilateral treaties, but also of cultural genocide, what's been done in Crimea to the uh, Crimean uh, Tartars, either killing them or deporting them to places like Siberia. So we are seeing that uh, Russian playbook play out now in the war with Ukraine. But once again, um, they are do performing very badly on the battlefield, poor morale of troops. They're losing um, soldiers at two or three to one to the Ukrainian side. And uh, one more quick thing is with the introduction of these uh, more powerful longer range missiles like the Storm Shadow from the UK and the attackums which are expected to come, you can probably expect uh, a ratcheting up, probably it could even include it could even include a direct strike on the Kerch Bridge, which is an important resupply chain in the whole war effort. It, I think with these newer missiles, it would not only um, put a hole in the bridge, but put it out completely. And again, we have to emphasize this, these, these resupply routes are legitimate military targets. Don Teller, Michael raises the point there, wondering what people in Crimea think of all this. It must be pointed out, mustn't it, that polls have consistently shown that more than half of the population in Crimea favour unification with Russia. This is a broadly Russian, ethnically Russian population. Um, I think it's very important to highlight two points. First, that in 1991, when Ukraine had a referendum on independence, 
the majority of people in Crimea voted in favor. It wasn't an, a, a resounding majority as in other parts of Ukraine, but mm. nevertheless, it was a majority, if I'm not mistaken, of, of around 57%. And that also included the city of Sevastopol. So when Ukrainians had a chance to vote in an open uh, sort of referendum, they did vote in favor of Ukraine's uh, independence in Crimea as well. And what is important to highlight is also the fact that uh, the referendum that was carried out in 2014 was not really free and fair. And the opinion polls are very hard to uh, to, uh, to sort of evaluate. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't base myself on that. I mean, of course, we know that there are sympathies and generally there is a mood in support of, uh, of uh, integration with Russia. But that, uh, you know, doesn't justify the annexation, nor does it uh, allow Russia to operate in the way it does in the region, especially because Crimea has become really a seat of military operations for Russia. If we must remember the, 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 the major assault that was carried out in February 2022 uh, uh, into Ukraine was carried out from Crimea. So Crimea became really strategic as a base for military operations and also for uh, Russia, it has been, an, you know, control of Crimea has allowed it to really uh, sort of close the Sea of Azov uh, to Ukraine's uh, grain exports and all kinds of other in industrial exports on the western uh, coast, uh, excuse me, on the eastern and northern coast of Ukraine's Black Sea. So there are very many arguments in favor for, uh, you know, as I said, for Ukraine to try to retake control over Crimea. I think what is also important if we talk about uh, people, I think remember the Crimean Tatars. They are mm. originally from Crimea. Many of them have been forced to leave. There's been deportations during the Soviet era, and they were not really allowed to return, even, um, even when other peoples were allowed to return to their uh, areas of origin. The Tatars were not. So there's been a lot of uh, sort of, in a way, cleansing of populations that are originally from Crimea. And many Russians are really first generation there. They're not there since many generations in Crimea. Andre, why did President Vladimir Putin annex Crimea in 2014? It was seen to be illegal under international law, and it started on a collision course with Ukraine and the whole world. Well, actually, after 19, uh, 1991, uh, we didn't expect that Crimea will return back to Russian Federation. We didn't have it in mind. It was uh, what happened in uh, 2014. This is the uh, development of the affairs because of the change of the regime in Kyiv, uh, this forceful change, coup uh, d'etat, military coup d'etat. And after that, uh, the regime started, uh, you know, intimidation of the people living uh, in uh, Crimea. So we had to put an end uh, on that because the regime turned to be really fascist, as it was during the Second World War. During the war in Ukraine, we had more than 1.5 million uh, over uh, traitors, traitors that collaborated with the Nazi. After that, we put them in prison. But unfortunately, in 1955, Khrushchev uh, gave way back uh, for them to return, and it was the start, the start of the present-day tragedy we are having. And remember that 11, 11 millions of Ukrainians are living in the Russian Federation, and they are backing everything. And I was visiting for several occasions Crimea, I must assure you that the population there, including Ukrainians, they are 
uh, well, happy that they will return back to the normal uh, situation uh, with, together with the, uh, the Russian. It's not the uh, division between the Russians and the Ukrainians. The, the, the division uh, between us and uh, this uh, regime that uh, took power in 2014. And uh, these people that collaborate in this regime, they are grandsons of the traitors and the cowards uh, that were uh, in, in, the, in the territory of Ukraine mm. during the Second World War. Do you accept, though, that Russia's annexation of Crimea is illegal under international law? Well, uh, it was absolutely legal, exactly like this Western country saying about Kosovo. The people fed up with this regime and they decided to return back to Russia. We didn't have these plans, as I told you. This is absolutely legal and we are not taking seriously the arguments the people are giving that did not visit Crimea, did not know anything which is happening there. What they are saying, some of our colleagues, even here on the TV, they are, you know, uh, uh, giving us some stories where they, did, uh, they uh, took the figures, where they took the opinions, did they have the opportunity to know what is going on this earth? These are fantasies and propaganda uh, that uh, the government of the United States are paying for their citizens and the citizens and some other countries, including the so-called Ukrainians. Michael, what's your response to that? that? The people in Crimea, they wanted to join Russia mm. after the fall of Viktor Yanukovych and the rise of uh, Zelensky and a more pro-Western government in Kyiv. Is that the way you see it? That's complete nonsense. And um, I think I don't want to dignify um, the individual who just spoke uh, by responding to his uh, twisted version of history, the lies, the, the fake news. Um, I will just raise one point here, and it's an important one, is um, Mr. Putin tried to justify his so-called special military operation by saying, you know, Russia is coming to the aid of Russian speakers in places like Kharkiv and Odessa and Mariupol. Well, these are the very uh, cities that Russia is striking um, without any sort of restraint. Um, I was just reminding myself, looking at a video yesterday, of how a Russian missile strike came straight into the historic district of Odessa, into that big Orthodox cathedral. So if this is their version of uh, protecting Russians, well, God help Russians elsewhere in the world. Look, the other uh, thing here I should mention, because I am seated here in the United States. We just finished, while well, we're in the middle of the UN week, and uh, Mr. Zelensky's visit uh, to Washington is that for the Ukrainians to finish what they started, declare full victory, and push the Russians back so that they no longer are a threat not only to NATO countries, Europe, but the rules-based international system, is that two things need to happen in Washington. Number one is that um, the, the, the decision-makers there need to get over their fear of the nuclear blackmail. In other words, Mr. Putin turning to nuclear weapons. I don't think uh, that will happen. And number two, there also seems to be concern in Washington about Russia somehow imploding if there's too many threats made to them, especially by the Ukrainians. I think that is nonsense uh, also. But one quick point, if I may, what we're seeing play itself out in Europe is that European countries actually acting ahead of United States, for example, providing main battle tanks, uh, jets, um, those long-range missiles. So that is a very uh, refreshing thing to see. And I think they realize that they're much closer to the front line. Russia is much bigger of a threat, mm. and they need to address it proactively.
Uh, Donatella, what, what do you think of that? Because we do have US media reports that Joe Biden is preparing to send a small number of long-range missile systems called ATACMS. What, first of all, do they do? How might that change the, the, the state of affairs for Ukraine? And how, indeed, might Russia then respond to it? Well, I think what is important is they can hit further deeper into areas where, uh, you know, Ukraine didn't have uh, the capability before it received uh, the Storm Shadow and Scarp missiles. So that helps, uh, you, uh, you know, Ukrainians to hit further be, be behind what we call behind enemy lines. Because what happened was when Ukrainians received the, the HIMARS, uh, they moved uh, a lot of their sort of control and communication and some of their uh, ammunition depots further behind. And these missiles would allow uh, Ukraine to hit at, uh, at uh, control communications uh, and also logistical support that is uh, helping with the military campaign. So it is really very helpful and very important. Um, I mean, the question of whether they would hit Russian territory, I think, uh, you know, is, is, a, is a delicate one, but it's one that should not sort of paralyze um, sort of uh, support for Ukraine, because what we are seeing is that, uh, you know, that first of all, it is necessary and essential for Ukraine to receive these weapons to uh, carry on more effectively its, its military campaign. And second, you know, Russia threatens a lot, but has limited capabilities unless it escalates uh, much mm. further to nuclear territory, which I think they will not do. So they will continue responding in the way they have responded so far. I mean, what one of the real concerns is if this war drags on for very, very long. But uh, I don't see that Russia would uh, sort of escalate to a level which is really threatening, which we would talk about in sort of the nuclear territory as a result mm. of receiving the outcomes. I think okay. that's not a we should be worried about. Uh, Andre, to what extent does the use of Western weapons in this war provoke Putin? Uh, well, um, actually, I think that uh, 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 the weapons that are coming from the West, uh, uh, this is one of the source of the prolongation of this, uh, this uh, war. Uh, the quant uh, uh, quantity is rather huge. And, um, well, um, of course, uh, uh, it gives the opportunity for the regime in, uh, in Kyiv to go on. Uh, but still, I'm uh, quite sure that in some period of time, uh, the people will be fed up with these uh, uh, war conditions uh, in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, maybe not we will win, but the Ukraine, the present-day regime, will fall. And there will be quite new opportunities uh, for us not to use uh, weapons against each other, but uh, to use the opportunity to make uh, a deal. I know Ukraine. I was living there for many years. I was in school, and uh, I have plenty of friends uh, there. And uh, I have the information which I gain myself, not by uh, magazines or newspapers mm. or something else. I'm, I'm having information directly. Uh, from the Ukrainians, including the western part of the of the of the Ukraine, uh, I think that uh, the situation, uh, well, uh, is rather negative, uh, and uh, okay. uh, the people are waiting for this for the stoppage of this, uh, you know, of this war. I'm just going to jump in there because we've just got a, a minute or so left. And Michael, last word to you: How long can Ukraine keep defending itself? Well, it should be defending itself for as long as it needs to. The West uh, allies should be providing Ukraine with everything it needs because 
once again, we are seeing Mr. Putin weaponize food uh, migration uh, to, to, you know, the, the trade with the world. And um, if the Ukrainians are not given everything they need, I, I assure you that this uh, war will come to the doorsteps of many people around the world. It already is in terms of higher food prices, higher petrol prices, much more insecurity. So, look, uh, you, Mr. Zelensky has made it clear here in the United States and re more recently to Canada is that they're not going to give up one inch of territory to the Russians. I think the Russians should get that into their heads and uh, do the proper thing and just pull back to the 1991 borders. And um, otherwise, they risk a lot more damage to their society, to their okay. lands, especially with these new missiles arriving. There, we do have to leave our discussion today. Thank you very much to all our guests for joining us. Andre Baklanov, Domitila Sagramoso, and Michael Borsicu. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Fintan Monaghan, Fungi Nguyen, and Jimmy Gettahan. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Anoban Sarka, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening and tune in on Monday for our next edition. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women, an unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.